Well, good morning. It is good to be here. Hey, before we get started this morning, I did receive word that uh, Donya Canup is in the emergency room at Covenant. Uh, not real sure, may be an aneurysm, but we want to be prayerful for her and do that as we begin our service this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, come to you this morning, we want to remember um, such an important part of our church family, Donya and her family. Um, just pray for uh, their peace right now as the doctors are at work uh, trying to uh, determine what's going on and what they can do to best treat and care for her. Uh, give them comfort in your loving arms and let them know that you are with them, that you are for them, and that they can trust you. Uh, Father, we are glad that we have the privilege to come before you and that we always know that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, to say that I was disappointed not to be here last week would be a huge understatement. And I won't go into all the gory details of what stood in the way, but let's just say God made it abundantly clear that I was not to be present. Um, but even in the midst of the disappointment, there's always blessings. Uh, one of those blessings is this. You had church. Really, you had church. You worshipped and exalted Christ just as you do every Sunday. There was somebody from a different culture that I was visiting with recently who had been to our church and they made this statement. They said, your songs are so happy. <laughs> and I said, you know, you're right. It was a good reminder to me that we have a lot to rejoice in. And that's what you did. You rejoiced in your worship. Last Sunday, people who consider this to be their church home were excited to be here. They brought friends and family. I'm sure this place was packed into the foyer. Jason did a great job of teaching God's Word, and I'm grateful that he was ready and willing to step in in that regard. We had baptisms, and we celebrated that incredible testimony of faith in those who had come to know Christ. Everything you did was faithful to what you do every single Sunday. You had church, and that's a blessing. Yes, it was heartbreaking not to be here, but what happens here doesn't depend on me or anybody else in this church. You are God's people, and the Spirit of God is alive and well in your hearts. God's presence in your life is at the heart of your worship. You remember Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, and he told her that an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Well, that's what you did last Sunday. Jesus was talking about you, and that's a blessing. With that being said, I know that our calendar says last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and that's because from a world's perspective, it's a single day, something we celebrate and then we move on. In fact, I got an email from a Christian organization this week that said something along the lines that now that we're past Easter and we can look forward to summer and fall plans, and I thought, no, that's not right. We don't just get past Easter. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we live the reality of the resurrection every single day. So one of the blessings for me that came out of the events over the last couple of weeks is that the week prior to Easter was probably the most, most difficult week of preparation I've had since I've started here at Melanie Park. 
I don't know what it was, but just couldn't get my thoughts together. And so I ended up writing multiple sermons that week. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to consider what it means to live the resurrection every day. Instead of just going on to the next series, let's consider what it would look like if we didn't just move past Easter, but what we actually considered what it means to rejoice in the reality of Easter every day. Because isn't that the privilege we have? So before we do that together, let me go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we open your word, we want to do so humbly. We want to come before you knowing that we do not possess wisdom and understanding apart from you. That we depend on you. And so this morning we're asking together as your family that you would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our heart so that we can be receptive to what you would want to speak to us this morning. You are the living God. You do speak and move in our lives. And so we open ourselves to you for that purpose this morning. We pray this in your name. If you would go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy, I want to go back to actually a place in 2 Timothy that we looked at early in our study as Paul is writing these final words awaiting his execution. You'll remember it's kind of like his last will and testament as he writes this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And within this passage this morning, uh, there is what I consider to be a very profound statement. And I want us to look at that together. So 2 Timothy chapter 1 And I want us to start in verse 8. Paul, writing to Timothy in verse 8, says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You remember, Paul was being persecuted for his faith. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. As we talked about, he has been ridiculed by his enemies, abandoned by most of his friends, and yet Paul didn't shrink away in shame. He's not questioning his faith. He's writing Timothy to encourage him to stand strong in the testimony of the Lord. And that last part is really important. The testimony of the Lord. Because you see, the basis of Paul's faith was not in his own understanding, his own reasoning. He believed in who Christ was based on the testimony of the Lord. And and God had to bring him to that place. I believe Paul was witness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And yet, he fully rejected those claims. He said that he didn't want to understand. Instead, he believed in something different. You see, here's the deal. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a part of a religious system. And like most of the other religious leaders, his confidence was in that system. In other words, there was a formula to Paul's faith. But if you think about that, that's true for a lot of religious systems, isn't it? There's a formula to the faith. I I learned of a new religion just the last couple of weeks, a religion that's very common within Persian cultures, a prophet by the name of Zoroaster. And, And this famous prophet has a saying 
that is commonly followed among this people group. And they say, it says this, turn not away from these three things, good thought, good word, good deed. It's a noble formula for a good life. Think rightly, speak rightly, do rightly. And Paul's formula was much more complicated. The Jewish system by this point had over 600 laws. So it would have been much easier to follow those three steps. But whether it's three or 600, Jesus would have said the same. Any formula of faith is a false hope. Any formula for faith is a false hope. No one can come to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. Remember, he told Nicodemus, another religious leader, another person who probably had a formula for his faith, you must be born again. He had no idea what that meant. But what Jesus was trying to say is, you've got to abandon your formula in order to follow Jesus Christ. There is no checklist that leads to salvation. No sacraments, no systems, no formula. Now, as you might expect, Paul initially opposed this whole idea. So much so that he went on a mission to destroy the Christian church because it messed up his formula. He led a massive persecution of the church, arresting anyone who stood for Jesus. This became his life's work because up to this point, Paul was convinced he was right. And I believe that at the crucifixion of Jesus, Paul breathed a sigh of relief because the one who had condemned his system of belief had been silenced, never to be seen again. It was over. At least that's what Paul thought. Because we all know that there was one day on the road to Damascus when everything changed for Paul. When he encountered Jesus Christ face to face. He looked into the eyes of the risen Christ. And in that moment, he realized his formula for faith was wrong. Because Jesus just proved that salvation is a miraculous work of God. Here's the key. Salvation is based on faith in what God does for us, not a formula for what we do for Him. Salvation is based on what God does for us, not a formula for what we do for Him. You see, we're not saved based on us reaching out to God. We're saved because God has reached out to us. And he has done that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at verse 10, or excuse me, 9 in our passage. I'll back up and it says, Suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose in grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now that last piece is amazing. And Jason mentioned this last week. From all eternity. That means that Jesus was God's answer 
before the world began. Which also means that he created us knowing we would need a Savior. That even though we were made to be in a relationship with him, he knew that we would seek to be fulfilled apart from him. But instead of leaving us to ourselves, God made a way through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The eternal plan of God was both revealed and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that all the Bible speaks to this truth. It's just not a New Testament reality. There are many people over thousands of years who pointed to the person and work of Christ in a variety of ways. In fact, you may remember that scene when the risen Christ is walking along the road with some disciples who at the time didn't recognize who he was because they were still confused with everything that had just happened. Their Messiah had been crucified. They had no idea there was an empty tomb. They couldn't figure out how it would possibly be in God's plan to see the Savior being sacrificed. How did they miss it? And then Luke goes on and he writes this. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. The plan of God was predetermined, and Jesus Christ was always, always, always the purpose of that plan. And then Paul makes that clear. Look at the beginning of verse 10. But now has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Savior. He was God's answer from before the world began. Our salvation is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not a formula, but a person. The religious leaders were experts in the law. They knew Scripture backwards and forwards, and yet they still missed it. How did they miss it? Well, Jesus explains, and the same could be true for us. This is what he says. Speaking to those religious leaders, he says, You search the Scripture because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me. His point is that you could turn to the Bible or any religious system looking for a formula, but you should be looking for a person. They all speak of me. Salvation is based on faith in what God does for us, not what we do for Him. As Peter would say, salvation is found in no, other, no one else. Because there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. And now here's the profound statement that I wanted to look at together. Look at the second half of verse 10. Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As I told some friends before Easter, there's lots of people who've claimed special revelation from God through the ages. Uh, lots of religious prophets and, and teachers, but they've all come and gone. 
there is only one who has risen from the grave with eyewitness proof from hundreds of people, including skeptics like Paul. That's why the, the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. It is uniquely Christian. So much so that the Bible says if that didn't happen, we are dead in our sins and our faith is worthless. Jesus Christ is literally our only hope. We either trust in our system and reject Him, or we reject our system and put our trust in Him. We believe based on the testimony of the Lord. Not our own reasoning. Because He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because this passage goes on to explain that only God can do what we could not do for ourselves. It says there, Jesus abolished death. Now think about that. Do you know anyone in all of history who can make that claim? Jesus abolished death. And why? What was the purpose? So that we could have eternal life. To put it a different way, Jesus died our death so that we could have his life. Jesus took our sin so that we could have his righteousness. He brought life and immortality to light. And no one knew that better than Paul because he saw it with his own eyes. He knew firsthand that Jesus abolished death because Jesus was alive. He knew that Jesus brought life and immortality to light because he saw it with his own eyes. Jesus was living proof that he had abolished death and had promised, had fulfilled the promise of salvation from eternity past. And since Jesus was God incarnate, he was only doing what he had promised to do. You may remember in Scripture when he says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. Jesus knew that he would die in order that he might rise again. He willingly died so that he might rise again. That's why he could tell Martha before his crucifixion. He says this in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks this question. Martha, do you believe this? See, I want to suggest to you this morning that that is the most important question that any of us will ever answer in our entire life. And I'll go on to suggest that it's not a question that we answer just once. That we continually come back to the place where we need to ask ourselves, is this what I believe? Because if you do, that's where the resurrected life begins. If you believe, 
that he is the resurrection and the life, that, in that moment of faith, is where the resurrected life begins. Let me read you a passage from Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 20. Familiar uh, passage. I'm going to go on and read verse 21. This is Paul writing, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. See, all resurrection stories begin with the reality of death. You cannot be raised from the dead until you die, logically, right? Well, when you trust in Christ, you die to every other system of belief. Which is why Paul says in verse 21, I nullify grace if righteousness is from the law. In other words, if I can use my formula, I don't need faith. My salvation depends on my surrender. That's what Paul understood. I live by faith, not in what I do for God, but in what God has done for me. I must die to self in order to live for Christ. And when I live by faith, that's where the resurrection begins. Because in that moment, the scripture's clear, you become a new creation in Christ. Old things gone, new things come. There is a miraculous transformation that begins to take place, and it is an ongoing work of God. The Bible uses the Greek word metamorphe to describe transformation. It's the word we use to get our English word metamorphosis. It's like that caterpillar that is being transformed into a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis, a gradual transition into something altogether different. And that is what happens the moment you believe. We're not waiting for heaven for that transformation to take place. That's where it's made complete. It actually begins the moment that we believe. You see, that's why baptism, as we celebrated last week, is such an important part of what we do as a church. Because it gives us a picture of what we believe. We go under the water as a picture of being buried with Christ. It is the belief that He took our sins to the grave. So that through faith in Christ, He may wash away our guilt and shame. So that we may rise again to walk in the newness of life. It's a picture of the resurrected life. A life that begins the moment you believe. And it's a life that is now lived not in your own strength, but in God's strength. Jesus made a promise. He said, I'll send you a helper, the spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive. And he will guide you in all truth. He will open your eyes to God's word. He will convict of sin. The Bible says it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as that transformation takes place, we're no longer ruled by selfish desires, but we begin to consider the needs of someone else is more important than our own. That's a miraculous transformation. 
as a new creation in Christ, we're no longer driven by success and accomplishments as our identity. But we learn to be content in a variety of circumstances. We're no longer defined by what we do or don't do. We're defined by what he does in us. The Christian life is all about learning to cooperate with that transforming work of the Spirit in our life. Like clay in the hands of the potter. Learning to be able to say, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And why? Because I trust your goodness. I believe in your faithfulness. I know I belong to you. Now, even as I say that, I know that it doesn't always feel that way. Last weekend, I did not feel like I belonged to God. (laughs) In fact, I felt pretty forsaken by God in that moment. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I don't know about you, but my faith gets really shaky really fast when I get sick. But I think there's times for all of us when it feels like the enemy has the upper hand. And Satan is crafty. He'll play off of those feelings in order to make us believe lies. He'll use our emotions to work his deception. For example, he'll take that conviction of sin, which is a work of the Spirit, and then he'll turn it into guilt. You see, God is clear. He says, approach the throne of grace with confidence so that you might find grace and mercy in a time of need. It's clear, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But Satan wants you to be buried, buried under the weight of sin. He wants you to avoid God because of guilt and shame. Satan's trying to convince you, look, it's hopeless. You're you're defined by your failures. It's just who you are. Someone asked me this week, what do I do with the shame and guilt that I feel for a decision that I've made in the past? Am I just supposed to carry that with me for the rest of my life? My response was, no. No. Not if you're a child of God. You can look at your past, even examining mistakes that may have been made, because we all know we've got a lot more clarity in hindsight, don't we? We can see things with much more clarity when we're looking back than we did in that moment. So it's okay. You can look back even at mistakes you've made, but move forward with wisdom and understanding and you leave guilt behind. Because that's what Jesus took to the cross. That's the freedom you have in Christ. The resurrected life says that we rise above Our circumstances. We're not defined by our past decisions. We live in the present reality of His forgiveness and grace every single day. We grow in faithfulness as we grow in love. See, it's important to know that obedience is not just a matter of trying harder, (laughs) obedience is simply an outcome of learning how to love God more. The resurrected life is a relationship. A relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And only he can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Here's the key. What we worship is at the heart of what we, how we live. What we worship is at the heart of how we live. Which is why the Bible often describes discipleship, that life of a follower of Christ, as hungering and thirsting. Not just knowing and believing. This is a gut. This is an emotion. This is a pursuit that's passionate. A desire to know who God is and what He's doing in my life for His good purposes. It's about wanting what God wants. Desiring what God desires. And the only way that we can know those things is if we know Him. The resurrected life is all about a relationship. And so let me encourage you this week to pursue that relationship. Let me encourage you to set aside systems, formulas, checklists, and pursue a person. Get to know who Christ is and what he's accomplished and celebrate the reality of his resurrection every day because that is how he accomplished victory over death. And it tells us in Scripture, if you have died with Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. And so let me encourage you to walk faithfully, knowing that you're not going to walk in obedience because you've got a checklist of things you're supposed to do. But let's try this on for size this week. See what worship will do to change your obedience. Worship Christ. Think about what He's accomplished. Know what He's done. And worship Him. And let's just see if how you love impacts how you live. That's part of the resurrected life. Because that's what the resurrection made possible. So live in that reality this week. Amen? Let me pray for us and then Carrie has an introduction to make. So, Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we don't move past Easter and just go on to the next thing. But we celebrate the reality of your resurrection every day. So Father, I pray for each person here this morning that they can take this truth and walk out those doors and live it all throughout this week that they would turn their heart towards you and allow their worship to, to really lead how they live their life. That what they love will dictate decisions that they make. Help them to worship you for who you are and what you've done. As one of those happy songs we sing might say, <laughs> no guilt in life, no fear in death, that is the power of Christ in me, to which we would say, amen. Thanks. Gary?